Well, take your Bibles, if you will, and open with me uh, this morning to Matthew chapter 8, continuing in our, our semi-regular series in Matthew. My, my microphone is already, it's already cranky. Pray for that, right? Some say the devil lives in the details, but I think the devil lives in the sound system. So... If we have any, yeah, that's right. Um, so if there are any uh, accomplished exorcisers of demons and you could, you could do something in that direction, that would be good. There's, we have a great sound team, great tech team, and, and there are some things that, uh, that they don't even have control over. And, and sometimes that's one of them. And so um, anyway, you guys are doing a great job back there. I appreciate you. Um, seriously, they're really good. Well, as we uh, open uh, and continue in our series in Matthew and, and, and moving into chapter 8, uh, in reading this passage this week, I was reminded of, um, and those of you who are movie buffs and TV buffs will, uh, will know this, uh, just this common scenario or common theme in movies or a scene in movies where you'll have two people appear on the scene who look exactly the same, right? One is a good person and one is the evil twin or the, the doppelganger or the, the clone of the other. Or I even think of the, uh, the movie, gosh, it's really old now, Face Off with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. Okay, good, you guys saw it too. And, uh, and, and one is a, an FBI agent and the other is this like number one most wanted criminal in the United States. And, uh, and through a, a dramatic series of events, they have their faces surgically swapped okay so get face off get it um and so and so one so each guy has the other person's their arch nemesis face and they're trying to you know do different things that the 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 bad guy is trying to con people into thinking that he's the fbi agent the fbi agent is trying to prove to everybody he's not really the bad guy but in all these scenarios where you have somebody an evil twin usually come to a place where the, the, the real person, the, the good person or the person that the, the protagonist of the story has to do or to say something that only the, the true person, the real person can say or to do to prove that he or she is who they say they really are, right? In a similar way, though, even before his identity is in question, Jesus begins to do things in his ministry that only one specific person could do. He begins to do things that only the Messiah can do. Let's look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17 this morning. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This is the the mountain on which he gave his sermon on the mount. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under, come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. 
When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. It might seem a little bit odd to do this, but in order to understand this text, we're going to go to the end, and then we're going to go back to the beginning, okay? So Matthew chapter 17, we see, Matthew tells us, the true meaning of the healings. What's the purpose of these three healings that Jesus is doing? It might seem strange to start at the end, but it's the final verse of this passage that we're in that that helps us to uh, have a lens through which to see what Jesus is doing. Here in relaying to us the true meaning of the healings, Matthew quotes Isaiah 53 verse 4 to show us that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. That is, he's bringing full meaning and full significance to the prophecy of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 53 is commonly known to us as the suffering servant passage or one of them. These portions of Isaiah's prophecy, the suffering servant portions, are understood certainly in the New Testament and absolutely by the early church fathers, those who were leading in the church in the early centuries. They were understood to serve as pointers, as as signs, as direction points uh, for who the promised Messiah would be and what his ministry would look like. Matthew is here reminding us that the Messiah would be somebody who would bring healing from sickness and diseases. That would be part of his ministry. Matthew's saying that the messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53 is finding its fullest and most perfect meaning and significance in Jesus. Matthew is saying Jesus is the Messiah. And we know this because he's doing what Isaiah said the Messiah would do. And only the Messiah can do. But when Matthew invokes the words of Isaiah 53, chapter 4, he's not only calling our attention to the physical healing ministry of Jesus, but he's also pointing us forward to the ultimate spiritual healing that Jesus will purchase for all of us on the cross and in his resurrection. Well, we've said it before, when, last uh, December when we began uh, kind of our, our sermon series in Matthew, we were looking at the first chapters of Matthew, and, uh, and after Jesus' birth, uh, Matthew says at the end of, uh, uh, of chapter 2, uh, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that, he, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He should be called a Nazarene. Uh, uh, and in other places, right, where, Jesus says, or where Matthew says these things were fulfilled, that, that he would be called Emmanuel, God with us, right? And when we looked at those passages, we saw that, we saw that Matthew wasn't just calling into, uh, into the minds of his readers just that single verse, from Isaiah, but he's kind of calling into, into mind the whole context of where that verse in Isaiah happens or where it occurs. And so this is what Isaiah 53 verse 4 says and 5 and 6 following it. So when Matthew is, is quoting uh, Isaiah's prophecy here in verse 17, he's also asking his readers to remember what's also around that verse. This is Isaiah 53 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is the Messiah, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. 
So here Matthew is saying Jesus fulfills the messianic prophecy that, that he will take the sicknesses and diseases of those that are brought to him. But he's also saying and calling into, calling into mind the, the context of, of Isaiah 53, 4, that Jesus will do more than that. He will not just heal, the Messiah will not just heal our physical infirmities, he will most importantly heal our spiritual infirmities. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Even here, before we move to look deeper at the, at the healings that Jesus does in this passage with the leper and the centurion servant and Peter's mother-in-law, we do well to understand and to remind ourselves that they happened for one purpose. The healings that Jesus does, he's not doing to just show that he's a healer and that he can heal. Now his, his healings, the miracles, the signs that he, that he performs in his life, as we read in the Gospel of John, are for one purpose, to point us to something greater, to point us to a, a more pertinent reality. And that is not that Jesus is just a good teacher. It's not that just he has the ability to heal, but it's that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that there is life in his name. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is this promised Savior. And that's the lens through which we have to read, should read, these healing stories in the first part of Matthew chapter 8. And so, when the nature of Jesus is revealed to us in Scripture, when Matthew shows us this is why Jesus did these things, to show that He's the Messiah, we do well to worship Him in truth. And we're reminded to worship Him for who He is. And we don't do this every single Sunday, but this is a really good week to do it, uh, given the text and, and what this means for us. We're actually going to worship Christ right now for what he's done for us in being the Messiah. And so Danny and the praise team are going to lead us in a time of singing, and then we're going to go back to God's word again for the rest of, of, of these verses this morning. So, um, Danny, I don't know if you want them to stand, but I do. So y'all stand and let's sing uh, this song together. Amen. It is good to worship in light of what we know is true about Christ and to worship Him as soon as we realize it. And so you got good practice in that this morning. Now, going back to the beginning of this passage, back to uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, and to the lens through which we are to read the rest of uh, these healings here in, in this section of Scripture. That is that Jesus is the Messiah who comes to save. Um, we we uh, are next met with Jesus healing this man uh, afflicted with leprosy. And in that moment, in, in verses 1 through 4, we see that the Messiah comes to make men whole. Let's read those verses again. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. You'll recall that Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount, through which we spent several weeks looking in detail at, at that sermon. And it was in that sermon that Jesus explained to us and describes what the kingdom of heaven is like and who can enter it. He's finished his sermon about the kingdom, and, and now he's entering into a period of time uh, where through many healings and many signs, we will see that the kingdom of heaven has actually been ushered in by Jesus. So he's preached on the kingdom, and now he's ushering the kingdom in in a very physical way. 
And so as Jesus is coming off the mountain, he's approached by this leper, by this man afflicted with leprosy. Not a leopard, but a leper. Right? In the time of the Old Testament, and even in these New Testament times, Jesus' day, leprosy was kind of a, kind of a catch-all term for any sort of infectious skin disease. Okay? Not, not always what we would equivalent or, or, um, or think of as Hansen's disease today, uh, which is what we'd call leprosy or what we know as a leprosy today, but it could be any sort of really infectious skin disease. We, re- we read in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. I know you all are very familiar with that because you enjoy reading Leviticus. We read in Leviticus 13 and 14 about people in Israel who had leprosy and how they were required to act in Israel as a result of the disease that they had. Right there we are told that a person with leprosy was considered unclean. And as such, a leper had to live outside the camp of Israel. They're receiving the law in Leviticus while they're wandering through the wilderness, right? They don't have a permanent city yet. They set up camp everywhere that they stop. And if someone had leprosy, a skin disease like this, he had to live outside of the camp until that disease was gone. He could not worship in the tabernacle. Or when Israel finally moved to Jerusalem and made their permanent residence there, those lepers could not worship in the temple, He or she would have to walk about wearing particular kinds of clothes that distinguished him or her as a leper, and they would have to cry out, unclean, unclean, everywhere that they went. Because if another person were to touch that leper, they too would be made unclean. It's not just the threat of spreading disease, but just be considered unclean. Sometimes we think of, of this concept of cleanness and uncleanness in the Old Testament as a sense of someone either being morally good or morally evil, respectively. We think of cleanness and uncleanness as good things and evil things. But in reality, the law of Leviticus that, that deems lepers unclean has more to do with God's character and how he's to be worshipped than anything else. For instance, uh, let me put it this way. We know that leprosy or cleanness and uncleanness is not so much about sin in somebody's life. And we know that from John chapter 9 when Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And before he heals the man, people come to Jesus saying, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that this guy was born blind? They saw the physical affliction, physical suffering as a result of sin in somebody's life. And Jesus said, it, it, wasn't, for, it wasn't because of anyone's sin that this man was born blind, but, but that the glory of God might be revealed, okay? Well, we know from Leviticus, from all the Old Testament, really from all of Scripture, that God is holy, right? He's perfect and He's unstained by sin. There's nothing bad or evil at all in God. But sin, on the part of mankind, has brought brokenness into creation. A couple uh, Sunday nights ago, maybe it was last Sunday night, we spent time in Genesis and we, and we looked at the fall and the results of sin in the world. There's brokenness in this world. Sickness, death, pain, things like leprosy are symptoms of a broken world because of our sin. And so a person with leprosy was considered unclean and unable to worship in the tabernacle, not because of sin in their life, but because the stain and effects of a sinful world were visibly upon him. And you can't take the stains and and effects of a sinful broken world into the presence of a holy God. Right? God has no mixing with sin. Okay? And, and that was portrayed visibly in the way that he asked his called people Israel to worship in the temple and in the tabernacle. That those who would worship would have as, as few symptoms, as few signs of the stain of sin on their life as possible. Because God is holy, he has called his people to be holy, and they are to worship him in holiness. And so this man, though not necessarily spiritually unclean, had a skin disease that has made him ritually unclean. 
And because he was ritually unclean, he was living as an outcast of both society and the temple. The effects of sin in a broken world have robbed this man of his community. He has to live outside the camp, can't live with his family, can't be around his friends. He has to live beyond where they are. But more than that, it's robbed him of his ability to worship God in community. But this man knows something of Jesus that others don't seem to recognize. Right? So when he sees Jesus, he braves the crowds that avoided him. Imagine, imagine this. This guy has leprosy, and now he's entering into a crowd of people who do not have leprosy to go see Jesus. Do you see the risk that this man took to get to Christ? And there he humbles himself in front of Jesus, and he says to Jesus, If you will, you can make me clean. Notice that the man does not ask for healing, but he asks to be clean. Why? What's the significance of this? Uh, I I think it's that more than healing, the man wants to be ritually cleansed. He wants to be restored to community and to worship of his God. That's why he doesn't say, "Make make me healed, make me whole. He says, make me clean. Notice also that he does not doubt Jesus' ability to heal him, but he says, if you will. That is to say, if it is your desire. Jesus, if you so intend to cleanse me, you can. It's up to you. And what does Jesus do? Well, the text tells us here that he reaches out his hand to touch the leper. No one else would do what Jesus just did. He's touching this unclean man. And not only does Jesus not become unclean, but in touching the man, he declares that that he does so will to cleanse the man and he makes him clean. You see what's going on here? If anybody were to touch a leper, they would be immediately declared unclean. But Jesus takes initiative to touch the leper. And not only does Jesus not become unclean, he makes the the leper clean. Takes away his illness. Immediately then, Jesus commands the man to say nothing to anyone. But instead to waste no time in going to the temple to offer the gift. uh, According to Leviticus chapter 14. That would testify to his cleanness and reinstatement to the worship of God. See, the priests in the temple couldn't make anyone clean. All they could do is testify to someone's cleanness. So if somebody had leprosy, they they were to leave the camp and word would uh, make its way to the priests. And they would know that there's an unclean person and who that person is. And after a period of time, if the leprosy left that person, the skin disease, they were healed of it. Uh, It went away. Then they were to return to the priests and the priests would say, uh, yes, it appears that you are no longer infectious. And so now offer this. um, We're going to do this. Offer this sacrifice. And you'll be deemed ritually clean and restored to worship in the temple. All that is the manner of, uh, uh, is, uh, of Jesus healing this man. Right? That's what happened externally. He was healed of his leprosy externally. But, but internally, something bigger is happening. What are the effects of this healing? The effect of this healing is that Jesus has made this man ritually clean so that he can worship God rightly and with a clear conscience. He can rejoin his community in worship. Additionally, he's made it possible for the man to return to community, to live with his family again, to see his friends, to return to work. Jesus has done more than just restore this man's health. He's restored his entire life. And now this man, this leper, former leper, can return to his family, to his friends, to his house, 
to the temple to worship. The statement that Jesus is ultimately making in cleansing this man, the the ultimate effect of this cleansing is that his work on earth is about more than just making life better. Jesus comes to restore men and women to spiritual wholeness. He's the Messiah. That's what he does. And so as we look at what Jesus is doing and who Jesus is in, in these first four verses, we're confronted to, first and foremost, come to Christ to make you whole. Right? If you are lacking spiritual wholeness in your life, come to Christ for spiritual healing. If you don't know Christ, know Him today. Come to Him today. Let Him make you spiritually clean today. And for those of us who are already walking with Christ, we're already trusting in Jesus, we still need to continue to walk with Him daily to be spiritually whole. We continue walking in repentance and faith in light of the salvation that we've received. We continue walking in repentance and submission to God, to Christ through His Word, for continued sanctification, that He might continue to make us holy like God is holy, that the character of Christ would grow in us, be developed in us, so that we would look more like our Savior with each and every day. I'm reminded of the song, and we actually sang a stanza of it just a moment ago. Nothing but the blood, right? Classic Christian hymn, one of my favorites. Let me remind us of some of its words. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Another stanza says, This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you need hope? Do you need peace in your life? Come know Christ. Trust His sacrifice on the cross for your sin and His resurrection from the dead. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The only way that I'm right with the God who has created me is by the blood of Jesus. His death on the cross for my sins, taking the punishment that I deserved on Himself so that I could be made right with God. The Messiah comes to make men whole, but in verses 5 through 13, we also see that the Messiah has all authority. This scene, this, uh, this event with this centurion, this Roman centurion, I won't read all of these verses, but it, it shows us that Jesus has authority. And so after cleansing this man with leprosy, Jesus makes his way to the nearby town of Capernaum, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's there that he's met by this Roman centurion, a military officer who oversaw, uh, most people think, and rightly so, a hundred soldiers. This centurion comes to Jesus with a request. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. First of all, I think it's, uh, it's important for us to see, and, and I think it's really amazing to see, the level of compassion that this military commander has for just one of his servants, right? Servants, slaves in those days were, were not highly thought of people. They were certainly second-class citizens. If there's something below second class, they might would be that. But here's this Roman centurion, a man of the military in Rome, who has compassion for his servant. But that aside, the, the appeal, the request of this Roman military captain to Jesus as Lord is remarkable. He comes to him and he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. More than likely, this Roman centurion probably just meant this word Lord as a, a term of respect, like saying sir, right? Sir, my servant is at home. But in the context of Matthew, the book of Matthew, this is the, only the second time after the leper has called Jesus Lord that, that Jesus has been referred to as Lord. 
And that's significant in the book of Matthew. Matthew is highlighting what Jesus is called in order to point us, point out to us his identity as Messiah. The leper may not have known it, and the centurion at that moment may not have known it, that Jesus was Messiah, but they're already confessing that he is Lord. They're confessing that they, they need to be in submission to him, to his lordship, right? Jesus' response to the centurion is simple. He says, I will come and heal him. But the centurion balks at this. He says, Lord, I'm not, I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. He says he's not worthy to have Jesus in his home. But that since he's a man of authority also and knows how authority works, right, that he gives commands and he takes commands and, and he know how, knows how all of that works out in life. He knows that Jesus is also a man of authority and that all Jesus has to do is say the word and the servant will be healed. A moment ago, Jesus touched a man and was healed. But now you have this Roman centurion saying, Jesus, all you have to do is say the word. Just say the word and he'll be healed. It's at this point that we see that the centurion knows something of the source of Jesus' authority that that other people are not yet recognizing. He sees that Jesus' authority to heal a person who is out of sight and perhaps even several miles away could come only from God. There's only one person that has authority to heal someone with a word. And that is God. And the centurion is saying, all you got to do, Jesus, is say the word. Here Jesus breaks from his conversation with the centurion to turn to those that are following him to teach something, right? He says, uh, the text says that Jesus marveled at this man's faith. He was in awe of his faith. And he says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This statement is astounding because if anyone should have faith that God could do anything, it would be the Jews, the people of Israel. But here's a Roman centurion, a Gentile soldier of the occupying army in Jerusalem and in Israel who is trusting Jesus as Lord over all things with the healing of his servant. You can almost hear everyone's jaws hitting the floor when Jesus says what he says next. Going on saying, I I tell you, many will come and will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown in the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What Jesus is saying is that there are many Gentiles, those from the east and the west, who are far from God, far from God. And they will, by faith in Jesus, come into the kingdom of heaven. And recline there at around the, the table, right? This, this imagery of, of feasting is often used uh, for, for what eternity will be like, right? It's going to be time of rejoicing and celebration. And who are these Gentiles from east and west feasting with? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Simultaneously, those who are children of the kingdom already, those who are heirs of the kingdom, namely the Jews, people of Israel that Jesus is speaking to, they will be cast out of the kingdom for not having faith. And so yet again, he's making clear that there's just but one way to salvation. It's not your affiliations. It's not your family members. It's not who you know or who knows you that grant access to the kingdom, but only faith in the king. The scene then closes with the Lord Jesus saying the word and the servant being healed. Simple as that. We find at the center of this healing is that Jesus is is much more than a healer, right? He is Lord of all creation. He, and and not He-Man, one of my favorite childhood heroes, is master of the universe. Okay? Only Jesus can command the sick to be well, and it happened at that moment. Why? Because He, the King and the Creator of all things, has authority over all things. 
The king can do what he wants to do in his kingdom. And this anonymous Roman military man is wise and discerning enough to see that. This man who would have been told by the Jews that he had no place at the table with the great fathers of the Jewish faith sees that there is only one person with true authority to heal and to save, and his name is Jesus. And the centurion whose life was structured around submitting to others and giving orders to those that were submitted to him knows that when it comes to giving orders that matter, orders that can save lives, there's only one person with that kind of authority. And he's looking at him. That's what we learn from this healing. Not so much that Jesus wants to heal people, that he has the will to heal people, that he he is um, able to heal, but that he can do so with only a word. That's the kind of Lord who deserves reverence and obedience. That's the kind of Lord, the Lord who can speak a word and things happen at his will by his authority is the kind of Lord who deserves to be followed and obeyed. So when we think about our own lives, we, we know that since Jesus is both Savior and Lord, and if we're going to call him both Savior and Lord, we have to have radical and total obedience to him. And put it another way, Jesus cannot be your Savior unless he is also your Lord. Then put it a third way. In order for Jesus to be your Savior, he must be your Lord. And if he is your Lord, if he is indeed the King of the universe, then we must have radical and total obedience to him. That means that our, our loyalties are not divided we, we don't have feet in, 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 different, uh, in different worlds, on different sides of a, of a ditch here, right? We're, we're choosing one or the other. And Jesus says that we have to do as much. King, citizens of the kingdom must do as much. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, remember he says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other says you cannot serve both God and money. He uses their money as a, as a ready example of some of the other things that he's talking about, worry and anxiety and things related to finances. But I would say you can put anything else in that position of that phrase, you cannot serve both God and money, and it would be true. You cannot serve both God and your job. You cannot serve both God and politics. You cannot serve both God and fill in the blank. It's either one or the other. Now, we can serve God in the realm of our family. We can serve God in the realm of work. We can serve God in the realm of politics. But we can't be a slave to those other things. We are first and foremost servants and slaves, obedient followers of Jesus. And that faithfully so in whatever area of life that God may put us. Since Jesus is Savior and Lord, you must have, we must have radical and total obedience to him and to him alone. Finally, in verses 14 through 16, and also in verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 13, that we'll see here in just a moment. But we see that the Messiah comes to all mankind. The promised Messiah comes to everybody. In this third healing, Jesus' motive is unclear, right? They go into Capernaum, and he goes into Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick there with a fever, and Jesus touches her, and she's well. And rather than being approached by someone needing healing or wanting healing for someone they know, Jesus takes the initiative himself to heal this woman. We've seen that Jesus has the will to heal with the leper. The leper says, right, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I will. 
And we see that Jesus has the authority to heal people because the centurion says, you have authority, all you got to do is say the word. And Jesus says the word and the man is healed, right? But now Jesus acts without even being asked since his will to heal and his authority to do so have already been affirmed. Now he shows that he's going to those who we may not expect him to go to. What stands out in this scene is that Jesus touches this woman to heal her. And in that day in Israel, uh, Jewish cultural um, uh, ideologies, cultural conceptions, uh, women were seen as sort of second-class citizens. Think of John chapter 4 when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, right? That's scandalous, okay, that, that a single Jewish man would be sitting with a single woman uh, uh, alone in the middle of the day, right? The disciples don't really know what to do with that. That Jesus would heal this woman, Peter's mother-in-law, just through touching, would have been scandalous even to those who watched this happen. But Jesus is unconcerned with appearances. He's not concerned with what people think about what he's about to do. He just does what he knows is right, what he desires to do. He exercises his will and his authority as Messiah without partiality to those that he is healing and without regard for the concerned opinions of others. He very simply does what is right and what is good and what is within his power to do, as which reveals who he is as Messiah. When Peter's mother-in-law is healed, it inspires the crowds who have been following Jesus this day to bring others to him for healing as well. And with this third healing in one day, Jesus' fame as a healer begins to spread quickly throughout the area. And so by the end of the day, all of these people are being brought to him to be healed and to have demons cast out and all of those sorts of things. This is illustrative of, of the kind of ministry that Matthew has already said Jesus had and exercised. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, just before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew writes this, And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan." even before Jesus really begins his ministry in earnest with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And then these healings following, Matthew tells us what is about to come, right? That Jesus went teaching and healing. And so on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we have teaching. And then already starting in in chapter 8, we have healing. Jesus doing what he set out to do. Jesus doing what only the Messiah could do. Proving that he is what Isaiah's prophecy and who Isaiah's prophecy said he would be. And so through these three healings, the healing of the leper, the healing of the centurion servant, and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, this woman, the one undeniable fact of this passage is that the Messiah comes for all kinds of people. All kinds of people. He comes for the ritually unclean. He comes for the leper who needs cleansing. Not just healing, but cleansing, restoring to community and to worship. He comes to, the, to those who may not feel like they can worship rightly because of how they look or something that's going on in their life. Y'all know anybody like that? Y'all know people that are far from God that don't want to come near to God because they feel like they've got to clean up before they can come to church, so they've got to get things right in their life before they come to Jesus? Jesus, in cleansing the leper, says that's not true. 
Jesus goes to the, well, the leper approaches him and Jesus doesn't shy away. No, he touches the leper. He doesn't say, well, buddy, first wait until this thing passes, you know, and then, and then come to me and then, and then go talk to the priests and then you can go back and do it. Jesus says, no, quit doing things the way you've always thought to do them, right? I'm making you clean. I desire to make you clean. You're clean. Now rejoin your community, rejoin worship, right? Now go be right with God. The same is true for us today. And for anybody who is without Christ, Jesus doesn't want you to get clean before you come to him. In fact, you can't. You can't get your life so together before you come to Jesus that he won't have any work to do. In fact, the opposite is true. The opposite is true. He wants you to come to him dirty. He wants you to come to him sinful. He wants you to come to him broken and, and hurting because he knows that only he can fix it. And the good news of Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 is that he has the will to do so. Not just that he can, but he wants to. Jesus wants to make you whole. Jesus wants to restore your relationships. He wants to restore your ability to worship God because you've broken that relationship with God from sin. Jesus wants to fix those things in our lives. Jesus wants to fix our broken marriages. Jesus wants to fix our our broken relationships with our children. But we've got to come to him and allow him to do those things in us and through us. Jesus doesn't just come for the ritually unclean. He also comes for the ethnic outcast, right? The Roman centurion, this guy who was not a, not a, a member of Israel, not, not an, an ethnic Jew. He was considered uh, second class by the Jews. He was part of this Roman invading force. He was hated and made for many different reasons by the Jews. And Jesus comes for him as well. Jesus doesn't just come for 21st century uh, Western American Christianish type people, right? Jesus, Jesus comes for men and women of, of sub-Saharan Africa and, and Southern Asia. He, he comes for men and women from uh, the, the Aborigines of Australia and New Zealand. He, he comes for those living in the islands of the Pacific Rim. Jesus comes for the Inuit of North America. Jesus comes for everybody. We see in, in Revelation, right, this vision that John has of, of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue around the throne of God worshiping. Christ doesn't just come for people that look like us. Christ doesn't just come for people that are some, from the same place as us. He comes for everyone. And with Christ, there is no partiality in that regard. There's a reason that he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Because Christ came for all nations. He came for all ethnicities. He came for all cultures and all people groups. We see with the healing of this woman that Jesus comes for men and women alike. Even with Jesus, there's no, there's no gender distinction when it comes to salvation. Now, he affirms gender roles and gender distinctions as good parts of God's creation in other places in the New Testament. But when it comes to salvation, there is one way for both men and women to be saved, and that is through Christ. That's not saying that men and women don't have different roles and different responsibilities that are given uh, to them by God's good creation in the difference of the sexes, right? But before God, every life is valuable, whether it's male or female. Every soul is a soul needing salvation in the eyes of God. And there's only one way to get that salvation. It's through Jesus. Because Christ comes to bring people from every culture, every nationality, every ethnicity, every gender into the kingdom, we must, as the church, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, 
practice the same kind of impartiality in our ministry. Put it this way, we must be irrationally generous with the gospel. We must be irrationally generous with the gospel. What I mean by that is this. We must be willing to give whatever it takes, wherever, wherever it takes, whenever it takes, to get the gospel to whoever needs it. Paul says, I've become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. Right? We know that Christ has come for all people. And there are people in this world that, that don't have Christ. People who are not like us. People who, if they were to walk into the buildings of the, uh, into the doors of this church today, we, we might look the other way. We might avert our gaze based on how they look or what they smell like or whatever the case might be, what they're wearing. And so in that regard, I'm saying we must be irrationally generous with the gospel. We must take it to the people who others don't expect us to take it to because we know that they need it. There are people that are living on the streets in the area of, of First Street and Gold downtown that need the gospel. It may be, seem irrationally generous to take them the gospel, but that's what we've been called to do. There are people living in the places we've already talked about, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southern, uh, Southern Asia, in India, people living in, in uh, communist-controlled China, people living in other areas of the world that are, that are controlled by, uh, by, by Islamic um, uh, state governments that are oppressed by the church but who need the gospel. There, there are people who are Muslims who need the gospel. There, there are Sikhs and Buddhists and, and those of the Baha'i faith and atheists and agnostics who need the gospel. And sometimes we who have the gospel assume that those who don't have it won't ever want it because we're being rational about it. Well, so-and-so has lived this way their whole life. They won't want Christ even. But Jesus says, be irrationally generous with the gospel. Be crazy about who you take the gospel to. Now, I'm not saying be irresponsible, right? I'm not saying put your life into unnecessary risk or danger. But God might be calling you to risk your life for the gospel. God might be calling you, young person, God might be calling you, senior adult, to pick up and move across the world for the sake of the gospel. He may be calling you to be irrationally generous to the point of giving your life for the good news of Jesus Christ. In the late 18th, early 19th centuries, uh, late, late 1700s, early 1800s, uh, there's a man, young man by the name of Adoniram Judson, who felt the, the call of God on his life to be a missionary. And Adoniram Judson would, would eventually be known for being the first missionary in the country of Burma, uh, modern-day Myanmar. Okay? And he would spend his life taking the gospel to the people, uh, to the Buddhists of Burma. But before he moved, he was courting a young lady, uh, and eventually and he wanted to marry her. And so he wrote this letter to his future father-in-law, in order to ask his daughter's hand in marriage. This is what he wrote to his future father-in-law. Right, keep that in mind. I have now to ask you, he writes, whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to see her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this 
For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Can you consent to this? Adoniram Judson's future father-in-law said yes. I can consent to this. You tell me, tell me that that this man who gave his daughter to those things was not even with his daughter irrationally generous with the gospel. I have three daughters. I promise you if some boy wrote me a letter asking that, my first inclination would be, no, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? No, absolutely not. I'd like to see my daughter again. Thank you very much. Turns out Adoniram Judson's first wife did die in Burma, and his second, and his third as well. Three women gave their lives alongside Adoniram Judson for the purpose of taking the gospel to to the Buddhists of Burma in the early 1800s. So many people in the life of just one man, irrationally generous with the gospel. And why? Because the gospel is that important and because Christ is who Scripture says that He is. He is the promised Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the servant who will suffer for our sins according to Isaiah chapter 53. He is everything that God has promised that He would do to save lost, rotten, sinful souls that don't want a Savior, but through His grace and our faith in Jesus, He desires to save us. The gospel is that important. The news is that good. It is so good. It is so important. It is so critical that we all hear it that we must be, as the church, as those who are bearing Christ's name, to be irrationally generous with the gospel. This morning, I'm not going to ask you to pack up and move to India or to Burma or to sub-Saharan Africa to take the gospel. Although God may be calling you to do that. And if God's calling you to do that, you need to obey him, okay? If Jesus is your Savior, he's also your Lord. And if he's calling you to give your life for the gospel in another country, you need to say, yes, sir, and you need to go do it, all right? But what I am going to ask you today to do, uh, maybe something I hope, I hope and pray, that all of us have already committed to do. But in terms of being irrationally generous with the gospel, we find ourselves in a world, in a culture, in a time and a place where there are people who are very far from God. In our society, there are people that are really far from God and want nothing to do with him. But on any given Sunday, on any given Sunday, God may get a hold of just such a person who may be be tattooed up to their gills and have more piercings than you thought a person could have in their body, right? Who, who has a three-foot-high bright blue mohawk or, or who might walk in wearing a turban one week. Who, who, who is coming here because the name of Christ resides here and the people of Christ are here and this person knows, feels, senses that they need Jesus. Will you today commit with, commit with me this morning? I'm serious about this. This morning to when that person walks through the door to trample over anybody in your way to be the best friend that that person has in church that day. Well, the person that doesn't look like you, doesn't smell like you, doesn't sound like you, whose hair is an unnatural color, right? But who, who might be feeling like they need the gospel. 
Will, will you be so irrationally generous with the gospel that you will trample over anyone in your way or anyone that keeps you from going to approach that person as a friend, as a brother and sister, to welcome them into our body, to make them feel welcome in worship, to make them feel at home, to give them a friend to sit next to in worship? And then will you go a step further? Will you take that person to lunch, please? Can you commit to that today? I'm not asking for a verbal whatever, but, but I'm asking you, will we, will we be that kind of people who are so irrationally generous with the gospel that it's obvious, obvious on Sunday mornings that we view the gospel as so important that whoever walks in through the front doors, whoever walks in, they might even be somebody who has bad intentions, desiring maybe even to harm somebody in our church that Sunday morning. But can we be so irrationally generous with the gospel that we don't stop, that we don't even think twice to be a face for Christ, to be a, a voice of hope and peace in the gospel of Jesus to that person on a Sunday morning? I pray that we would. I pray that you'll join me as we sing in a time of response in making that commitment for yourself. And then also know that in the weeks coming ahead, I'm going to be watching. Okay? I'm not going to give a challenge and then, and then not follow up on it, okay? So I'm giving you, church, this challenge and myself as well. Will we be that irrationally generous with the gospel that we will welcome into our fellowship, into worship for the sake of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, all those people that look so different than us that, that they, might, they might be terrified to set foot uh, inside this building for whatever reason. But, but can we be so generous with Christ that, that we would welcome them knowing that they are in the perfect place to be, to, to hear of Christ, to, to know of his grace, to know the hope and to know the peace that come in knowing Jesus. So I'm going to be watching, and, uh, and when we're not doing that, I'm going to be sure to let us all know, okay? All right, so I'm, I'm calling you out, and, and I'm laying the challenge, and the, the gauntlet has been thrown, and so we are going to be that kind of church, okay? We are going to be that kind of church. I'm going to pray that God will help us to do so. As we prepare our hearts to respond to what God's word says about who Christ is and what we must, we who are bearing Christ's name must be about. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask God that he would move in our hearts to show us what is right, to show us what is good, to lead us to be obedient to him. Father God, your word is so good. 